This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Welcome to the show. Tonight we begin by going north, way north, to the Yukon for Challenge of the Yukon. Now, the program was an adventure series about Sergeant Frank Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police and his lead sled dog, Yukon King, as they fought evildoers in the northern wilderness during the gold rush of the 1890s. The series began on radio in 1938 and continued through 1947, after which the series moved to television. And according to radio historian Jim Harden, uh, Preston first joined the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to capture his father's killer, and when he was successful in that, he was promoted to sergeant. Preston worked under the command of Inspector Conrad. In the early years, he was often assisted by a French-Canadian guide named Pierre. During the course of the series, Preston successfully puts down a rebellion, captures assassins. Each episode has him battling a new crisis, whether it be tracking down a murderer, a gang of thieves, or claim-jumping miners. Preston's sidekick and ally, and really, arguably, the true star of the show, was the brave Alaskan husky Yukon King. In the radio version, King's barks were usually provided by animal, in, uh, let me try that again, animal imitators, usually sound effects guys like Dewey Cole and later actor Ted Johnston. Typical plots involved the pair helping injured trappers tracking down smugglers or saving cabin dwellers from wolverines. Sergeant Preston's faithful steed was Rex, used primarily in the summer months, but generally Yukon King and his dog team were the key mode of transportation, as signaled by Preston's cry of, On, King! On, you huskies! <laughs> so, I say mush. Let's get going with the episode, Escape to the North. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns, present the challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, on Huskies! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog Yukon King as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. What a treat it is to dive into a heaping bowlful of Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat topped with milk or cream and your favorite fruit. Mmm, what a breakfast. Say, these king-size, ready-to-serve premium grains of wheat or rice are shot from guns. Yes, actually exploded up to eight times normal size to make them crisp and tender. Bigger and better tasting. Tomorrow, sure, get off to a flying start with this breakfast treat. Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Luke McGowan was a hard-bitten product of the Northwest frontier, whose temper had not been sweetened by the fact that he had received what he considered a raw deal from organized society. After killing a man in a cafe brawl, he had been unable to prove that he had shot in self-defense and had been sentenced to ten years at hard labor. When his prison term was up, Luke drifted north to the Yukon, 
and in the summer of 98, he staked a small claim far up the Stewart River. All through the following fall and winter, Luke worked his claim industriously. And by the end of February, when his claim had finally petered out, he had taken more than $20,000 worth of gold dust out of the ground. Now he was on his way to Dawson City to cash in his dust and decide what to do with his hard-earned riches. McGowan had reached the mouth of the Stewart River and was traveling north along the Yukon Trail when he fell in with Louis Goreau, a swarthy, shifty-eyed half-breed. McGowan mistrusted the half-breed on sight and made up his mind that if questioned, he would say nothing about the bags of gold that were stowed away with the gear on his sled. So you have been prospecting up on the Stewart, eh, McGowan? Yeah, that's right, Goreau. Now you go to Dawson with plenty gold in your poke, eh? Oh. No, I didn't have no luck at all. I'm flat broke. Too bad, my friend. But that is the luck of the game, eh? What are you looking at me with that way for? I am trying to remember where I have seen you before. Now I remember. You are the Luke McGowan that was sentenced for killing a man 10, 11 years ago down in British Columbia, no? It happens that he drew on me first. Not that it's any of your business. Now, if you don't like the idea of being trailmates with a murderer... I'll mush on by myself. <laughs> oh, do not go losing your temper, my friend. Whatever you are, a murderer or an honest man, Louis Garreau can take care of himself. Come on. We hit the trail together. Twilight was falling as the two sleds drew to a halt at a fork in the trail. Here I must leave you, my friend. My cabin, she lie that way like to come with me, I will be glad to put you up for the night. Oh, thanks. I'll keep on the trail for Dawson. Very well. <laughs> then I say goodbye. In another hour, you should be able to reach Joe Rinker's cabin. Joe Rinker? I never heard of him. He is, uh, how you say it, an, an old-timer. He has a mine, very rich mine, too. But he wishes to sell it so he can go home to the States. Probably he will try to sell it to you. He tries to sell it to everybody. Well, he won't sell it to me. <laughs> I have the money to buy it. I got to be mushing on, Garo. Au revoir, my friend. And maybe I see you at Joe Rinker's tomorrow morning. Maybe. But I'll be hitting the trail mighty early. So long, Garo. An hour later, Luke McGowan reached Joe Rinker's cabin. That evening, after a tasty supper of bacon and beans, the two men sat talking near the stove. Joe Rinker spoke. So you made out all right for yourself, hey, McGowan? Yeah, I cleaned up at least $20,000 worth of gold dust. <laughs> that breed Garo don't know it, though. I didn't trust the critter, so I told him I was flat broke. <laughs> Where are you going? Hey, what are you going to do with that gun? McGowan, I'm going to kill you. Kill me? What for? Because I want that gold on your sled. But what about your mine? <laughs> it's not worth that plug nickel. It's solid. I've been trying to unload it on someone for the last six months. You mean you're actually broke? I'm broke, all right. But I've sworn I'm going to leave the Yukon with a decent stake. And that gold on your sled is just a stake I've been looking for. Look, you can't shoot me, Ringer. You'll never get away with it. No one will know you're missing, McGowan. <laughs> you better say your prayers right now. No, you don't. Lunging forward suddenly, Luke sees Joe Ringer's wrist. For a moment, the two men grapple, and then... Killed him. With a sinking feeling, Luke realized the full danger of his position. Who would believe his incredible story when every circumstance suggested that he had murdered the mine owner, with robbery as the obvious motive? I gotta clear out of here fast. Early the next morning, Louis Garreau stopped by Joe Rinker's cabin. He's dead. And I bet I know who shot him. Luke McGowan. You better go tell him on his. Sergeant Preston and his great dog, King, were at the nearby settlement of Ogilvy when Garreau arrived with the news of Joe Rinker's murder. A short time later, Sergeant Preston and King, with Louis Garreau, were carefully examining the scene of the crime. What do you look at the walls for, Sergeant? Rinker's gun had been fired. I want to see if the shot went wild and landed in the woodwork. Maybe he hit McGowan with that shot. I doubt that. If McGowan had been wounded, chances are he'd have left traces of blood somewhere around the cabin. You can bet King would nose out those traces. Ah, it is very strange. Now listen to me, Louis. Judging from those tracks outside, McGowan's heading due east. Go back to Ogilvy and tell them I said telegraph 
McGowan's description, to all the settlements east of here. In the meantime, I'll put King on McGowan's trail. Come on, boy. We've got a job to do. It was noon of that same day in the little town of Moose Crossing that Bill Weems, the local telegraph operator, stopped into Marsh Schmidt's general store. Bill, what's the news on the telegraph today? Plenty of excitement on the way, Ma. A man was found murdered over near Ogilvy. Murdered, you say? Ah, that is bad. The Montys know who did it, and they say he's heading this way. They've wired his description to all the settlements east of Ogilvy. What does he look like, this murderer? Well, they say he's a big, tough-looking sourdough with a crop of red whiskers. His name is Luke McGowan. You better keep an eye out for this McGowan feller. In the meantime, William, what do you say to a little game of checkers before you go back to work? <laughs> what do you think I came over for, Ma? <laughs> a short time later, as Ma and Bill were bent over the checkerboard, they heard the door open. Oh, you got a customer, Ma. Yeah, yeah, I do see what he wants. Yes, sir, what can I do? Well, what are you staring at? I, I was just admiring that crop of red whiskers you got. Quite a bonfire you got there, mister. Yeah? Well, never mind my whiskers. Just attend to my order and I'll be on my way. Yeah, yeah, you tell me what you want and I get it for you. As Ma bustled around, filling the stranger's order, she found an opportunity to whisper to Bill. It's that murderer McGowan, Bill. You sneak up the back way and go get help. That's what I thought. You keep him talking. Don't make a move, either of you. Since you two seem to know all about me, maybe I'd better tie you both up. Covering Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems with his six-shooter, Luke forced them to tie each other's ankles. Then he himself tied their hands behind their backs. <clears throat> I guess that'll hold you. All right. How much owe you for those supplies? Oh, I, I do not know. I haven't added up the bill. Maybe sixteen, seventeen dollars. I'll help myself to the flour and call it twenty. Several hours later, Sergeant Preston and King arrived in town. Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems told the Mountie their story. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant. I recognized him by his red whiskers. Mm. And a funny thing, Sergeant. He seemed mighty honest for a murderer. Oh. Before he left, he weighed out enough gold to pay for the supplies he bought. And he left it on the pan of the scales. Paid you in gold, eh? Yeah. Yesterday, he said he was flat broke. Ah, oh, he had plenty of gold, Sergeant. The poke he brought into the store to pay for his supplies, he... Must have had 20 pounds of gold dust on it. That gold may be the final evidence that will convict Luke McGowan of murder. Yeah? Come on, King. Better hit the trail again. Like we should be able to arrest McGowan within the next 24 hours. After leaving Moose Crossing, Sergeant Preston noticed that the fugitive's tracks had now swerved in a northerly direction. And those were after him, boy, so he's striking north. Probably thinks he can circle around Dawson and 40 Mile and get over the border before we catch up with him. Well, let's see about that. On King! On! Late the following morning, Luke headed up a rocky trail that gradually climbed until it topped a lofty, spruce-clad plateau. Pausing to look back over the ground he had just traveled, the fugitive finally caught sight of his pursuer on the winding trail far below. That must be a mountain. The way that team of his is traveling, he'll be on my neck in another hour. Must you, Husky! Whipping his team forward frantically, Luke pushed on at top speed. A short time later, he came to a low bridge, stretching across a steep wall ravine. The bridge was made of logs. Luke crossed the bridge, then halted his team and took out an axe from among the gear on his sled and began chopping. With furious strokes, Lou hewed away at the log bridge. Soon the structure began to totter. With a few more blows, the fugitive finally sent it crashing to the floor of the ravine far below. Already, Luke could hear the approaching dog team of his pursuer. Driving his own sled behind a big cluster of rocks, the fugitive ducked out of sight and waited tensely. As Sergeant Preston pulled to a halt on the opposite ledge, Luke stepped into view with his rifle raised to his chest and shouted, Don't go for your gun, Marty. McGowan, I advise you to surrender. I advise you to turn around and head back the way you came. And if I refuse... I'll come free. If you're not turned around by that time, I'm going to let you have it. I'm not turning back, McGowan. 
I'm starting around the ravine right now to place you under arrest. Remember, you can shoot me, but sooner or later the force will catch up with you. All right. Unkind! Un! Good morning, you Marty! One, two, three! We'll continue our story in just a moment. Shot from guns. These three famous words mean a breakfast treat all ready to eat. The original, the one and only Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Yes, these are giant-sized grains. I said giant size. And they actually are shot from guns to make them crisp and tender. Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat are exploded up, up, up. Two eight times normal size. That makes them bigger and better tasting. Yes, they're shot through and through with keen nut-like flavor, too. They're a thrifty, deluxe, family breakfast treat that's easy to fix as falling off a log. Just pour out a bowlful, add some fruit, and milk or cream. Talk about good. More important, long hours at school and play call for a hearty breakfast. And Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice furnish added food values of restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1, niacin, and iron. So how about it? You'll be getting off to a flying start when you eat Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice. And to get the original crisp, fresh wheat or rice shot from guns, always buy the big red and blue package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice are never sold in bags or both. Now to continue our story. King was furious when he saw his master fall face down in the snow. He wanted to charge, to attack the gunman, but the canyon blocked his way. Then the great dog did the next best thing. He sprang to his master's side, ready to shield Preston from further bullets with his own furry body. Sergeant Preston lay quietly for a few moments until he heard the barking of McGowan's dogs fade into the distance. Then he sat up and examined his wound. It's all right, boy. Just caught me in the fleshy part of the leg. Seems to be all right. Guess I can manage. King, if McGowan's a murderer, I wonder why he didn't kill me. At that distance, it's hard to see how he could have missed. Sergeant Preston bandaged his wound and then began the long hazardous trip around the ravine. By the time he picked up McGowan's trail on the opposite side of the ravine, the fugitive had gained a full six hours' lead on him. In the days that followed, Sergeant Preston maintained a steady, relentless pursuit of his quarry. On the fifth day after he had been wounded, Sergeant Preston encountered a trapper named Sandy Duncan, heading south of the load of furs. Sandy, I'm trailing a man named McGowan, big, tough-looking fellow and a crop of red whiskers. You seen him? I sure have, Sergeant. That's why I'm heading south. What do you mean? came to my cabin this morning and took nearly all my grub at the point of a gun. Of course, he paid me for it, but you can't eat gold. Well, I'm running pretty low on grub myself, Sandy, but I'll split what I have with him. No, you better hang on to what you've got. Tell you what, though, Sergeant, if you're willing to take time out, we can go hunting for a couple of hours. If either of us gets anything, we can share it. That might be a good idea. All right, Sandy, I'll do it. Sandy led the sergeant up the banks of a frozen creek or he thought they might locate the tracks of a stray moose or caribou. The two men separated in order to cover a wider terrain. But when they met several hours later, the only thing to show for their trouble was a snowshoe rabbit, which King had startled and driven into range of his master's revolver. Discouraged and somewhat uneasy, the two men headed back to their sleds, only to find that disaster had struck in their absence. Hey, someone's been at our sled, Sergeant. I think I can guess what's happened. They've cleaned out your grub and fed it to the huskies. Luke McGowan, Sandy. Now I know why you bought up most of your food this morning. Wanted to keep me from getting any of it. Murdering galoot? I left us enough to eat for a day or so. Bad lot of good that'll do. Sergeant, you better turn around and come south with me. I can't do that, Sandy. But, Sergeant, you'll starve if you don't catch up with him. I'll have to take that chance. My job is to bring back McGowan, and that's what I'm going to do. Cutting down his daily rations to the bare minimum needed to sustain life. Sergeant Preston pushed grimly ahead. 
It was two days later in a remote mountain valley that his long pursuit finally approached its climax. A grisly sight met the Mountie's eyes. Ahead of him on the snow-covered trail lay McGowan's overturned sled with the Huskies dead in their traces, their sides feathered with arrows. We can't help them now, King. They're dead. McGowan evidently didn't know it. But when he entered this valley, he was trespassing on the Indian's sacred hunting grounds. They don't seem to have disturbed the gear on his sled. Let's take a look, boy. Plenty of supplies and... Wait a minute. Gold dust. Four big bags full of it. And Sandy said you can't eat gold. And yet men kill each other to possess it. Doesn't make much sense, does it, boy? Sergeant Preston transferred the supplies and the gold from McGowan's sled to his own. Then he gave King his orders. All right, King, we're going after McGowan and the men who captured him. There's a chance he may still be alive. But remember, from now on, keep the Huskies absolutely quiet. Our own lives may depend on it. Darkness had fallen an hour later as King slowed the team with a low growl. Oh, you Huskies. Oh, no. What is it, boy? We near their camp? Leaving his sled, Sergeant Preston went cautiously forward with King at his side. Soon the distant flicker of a firelight among the pines warned the Mountie that he was in sight of the Indian camp. Advancing silently through the darkness, the Mountie and his great dog took cover in a dense thicket of pines and underbrush. Before them, in a small clearing lit by a blazing campfire, they saw five Indian warriors chanting and posturing before a white man bound helplessly to a stake. It's Luke McGowan, all right. They're getting ready. Spears and arrows. King, now listen to me, boy. I'm going to tell you what to do. King cocked his ears and looked steadily at Sergeant Preston's eyes while the Mountie gave instructions. Then the great dog slunk silently around the edge of the clearing, keeping always out of sight behind a screen of trees and underbrush. The Mountie waited until he was sure King had arrived in position. And then suddenly... With his carbine in one hand and revolver in the other, the Mountie burst out of the underbrush, firing into the air. The Indians, taken completely by surprise and believing themselves attacked from two sides, fled in wild disorder. As King pursued them to the edge of the clearing, Sergeant Preston dropped his carbine, prepared to cut Luke McGowan free from the stake. Mountie, you showed up just in time. Never mind talking. There. Now you're free. Take this revolver and I'll take the carbine. We'll have to reload as we run. As the two white men prepared to flee, one Indian, braver than the others, paused and looked back at the clearing. In a flash, his keen eyes took in what was happening. He rallied his comrades to battle. Rushing back toward the clearing, the Indians loosed a volley of arrows at the fleeing white men. Most of the arrows went wild, but one struck Sergeant Preston in the shoulder. No! Preston! As the sergeant was hit, King sprang to cover his beloved master, and Luke McGowan turned coolly and fired point-blank at the onrushing Indian. Two of the Indians went down before Luke's shots. The others wavered, then turned to retreat. I'll carry you, Mountie. King, lead the way, boy. Jamming the revolver into the sergeant's holster, Luke hoisted him over one brawny shoulder, then reached down and picked up the carbine. All right, Husky, let's go. King led McGowan to his master's sled, where the sergeant was gently deposited and the arrow removed. McGowan bandaged the wound as best he could, and then... we better make tracks out of this valley pronto. Must you, Husky! The next morning, Sergeant Preston awoke. McGowan, where are we? Take it easy, Mountie. We're a good many miles south of that Indian valley. Oh, hello, fellow. Good old king. Some dog you got, Sergeant, believe me. If it hadn't have been for him, we might have left our top hair back there with the Indians. What happened to your weapons, McGowan? They weren't on your sled. My six shooters right here under my park. Huh? The Indians never did get that. They took my rifle... Got so excited when you attacked, I forgot all about it. Well, what's the next move? You seem to hold all the trump cards at the moment. I don't know, Sergeant. Something else I don't savvy is why you risk your life to save me. I might ask you the same question. Well, how about it? You coming back to stand trial? Yeah, Monty, I, I guess I am. A week later, the two men arrived back in Dawson City. Their appearance caused a minor sensation. Sergeant Preston, still weak from his wound, was riding the sled while Luke McGowan handled the team. Inspector Maynard, seated in his office at Mounted Police Headquarters, voiced the general reaction. What did you do to him, Sergeant? Hypnotize him? 
That's the first time I've ever seen a prisoner brought in driving the Mountie sled for him. This prisoner came back voluntarily, Inspector. I think that should be remembered in his favor. It will be, Sergeant. Tell me, sir, have they held the inquest on Rinker's death? Yes, and they returned a verdict of murder against Luke McGowan. Oh, in that case, he'll have to stand trial. Any reason why he shouldn't? He's guilty, isn't he? Of shooting Rinker, yes, sir. Of murder, I don't think so. Can you prove that, Sergeant? I'm going to try, Inspector. I'm going to try awfully hard. On the day of the trial, the courtroom was packed. Luke McGowan was on the stand. Now, tell us in your own words exactly what happened at Joe Rinker's cabin. Rinker pointed his gun at me and said he was going to kill me. He said he wanted the gold on my sled because his own mine was worthless. I grappled with him and the gun went off accidentally. Public sentiment, which at first had run strongly against McGowan, was now divided. And if Sergeant Preston says McGowan ain't guilty, then he ain't. But don't forget, he served time for killing a man down in British Columbia. Uh, let's wait and hear the evidence. A tense hush fell over the audience as Sergeant Preston took the stand. Sergeant, I understand you've gathered evidence tending to support the defendant's story. Will you tell us what that evidence is? Yes, sir. In the first place, Rinker was not killed by McGowan's gun. How do you know that, Sergeant? McGowan's six-shooter is a Colt 45. The bullet that killed Rinker was from a 32. It was obviously fired from Rinker's own gun, as McGowan claims. How do you know the 32 revolver found in the dead man's hand really belonged to Rinker? Friends have identified it as Rinker's gun, sir. Also, his initials were carved on the grips. You feel that rules out the possibility of murder? In my opinion, if McGowan had shot Rinker in cold blood, he would have used his own six-shooter. Simply doesn't make sense that he used Rinker's gun. Only reasonable explanation is that Rinker drew on him and the two men grappled, just as McGowan claims. I see. Is there any other evidence? Yes, sir. I've carefully examined Rinker's mine. With what result? The mine is worthless. That throws some doubt on McGowan's alleged motive for the crime. Frankly, sir, I think it explodes the whole case against him. If Rinker's mine was worthless, then the gold on McGowan's sled must have come from his own claim. Under those circumstances, it was Rinker and not McGowan who had a motive for murder. Is that all, Sergeant? Well, I'd like to add this, sir. At no time while I was trailing McGowan did he behave like a cold-blooded killer. His every act was that of an innocent but desperate man. And when he returned to stand trial, he returned voluntarily, even though he could easily have killed me and escaped. In my opinion, Luke McGowan is clearly innocent of murder. Following Sergeant Preston's testimony, it took only a few minutes for the jury to return its verdict. We find the defendant not guilty. As the crowd left the courtroom, Luke McGowan pressed the sergeant's hand warmly. Your goal's waiting for you at headquarters, Luke. Well, never mind the goal, sergeant. I, I just want to shake your hand. Well, don't bother thanking me, Luke. I was just doing my job. Frank King here. If he hadn't been on your trail, you might still be a fugitive. And if he hadn't been with us in that Indian valley, we might both be dead men. He's a smart dog and no mistake. Gosh, King, thanks, fella. At last, I've had a fair deal. <laughs> What's he mean by that? Well, Luke, I guess he's glad to know this case is closed. In just a moment, Sergeant Preston will give you a preview of Wednesday's adventure. Listen. Whatever you do, be listening to this program Wednesday. Remember, fellas and girls, that's the day after tomorrow. You're in for such a treat you'll hardly believe your ears. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice have a surprise for you. If you like dogs, if you like king, if you like any dog, be on hand. Every single one of you listeners is getting in on something big, an offer that's out of this world. It's something you'll want, and it's yours at no extra cost. There's nothing to write in for. What is it? Well, all I can say is this. If you like dogs, be listening to our very next broadcast. And tell your friends to listen, too. 
That's this coming Wednesday, the day after tomorrow. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the same time by Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns. Listen Wednesday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the case of the Sparrow. I was taking a boat trip on the Yukon Queen to protect a millionaire who was coming from New York. One night I found a note slipped under the door asking me to come to another part of the ship. When I reached there, I was slugged and thrown overboard. When King jumped after me, well, it's a mighty exciting story. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Wednesday. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly next on Theater of the Mind. It's time to check in with Fibber McGee and Molly. And in this episode, we discover that Fibber tells the truth. <laughs> Shocking. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow present Marion and Jim Jordan as Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, the King's Men, and Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with I Know That You Know. Not electrocution. 
I know it. I was just pulling the switch. <laughs> and if you must know, I'm speaking to the Wistful Vista Grammar School pupils. Oh, heavenly days. The whole student body? Well, no. Just the fourth grade. <laughs> ah, the poor little things. And what time of the day will this leaking gas be detected? <laughs> At 11.30 a.m. 11.30? Do you mean those innocent little kiddies have to take that stuff on an empty stomach? Oh, Molly, I suppose you don't think I'll do right by George. By George, I don't think you could. <laughs> Molly, you surely you ain't accusing me, Fibber McGee, your own husband, of, of, of toying with the truth. Toying with it? <laughs> You'd make a municipal playground of it. <laughs> Did you ever tell the truth for one solid hour? Why, of course I did. McGee? Well, I bet I could if I wanted to. <laughs> What'll you bet? Anything. All right. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll bet you a box of cigars against that fur coat I've been wanting that you can't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for one hour. A box of cigars against that fur coat? Right. Well, <laughs> as the castor oil says when it heard the baby whimper... I think I've been taken. <laughs> but okay, I'll do it. It's a bet. You betcha. <laughs> it's two o'clock, and for the next 60 minutes, you tell nothing but the truth. Right. I don't think I'm going to like it either. <laughs> well, you've made your bet. Now don't lie in it. <laughs> now remember, for one whole hour, you will have to... Somebody at the door, Molly. You answered my foot's asleep. Is that the truth? Well, no. The truth is, I'm just too lazy. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Well, Come in. Hello there, daughter. Hello, Johnny. Want to buy a couple of cut-rate tickets for skiing lessons? Or do you know how to ski already? <laughs> Who, me know how to ski? Why, well, say, when it comes to skiing, old-timer... Box uh, of cigars against that fur coat, McGee. <laughs> Oh. As I was saying, old-timer, when it comes to skiing, I'm probably the dumbest guy that ever slapped the slope. <laughs> I'm awful. Too fat. Too clumsy. Too left feet. I'm hopeless. I guess I'm in the wrong studio, folks. I thought this was the Fibber McGee program. <laughs> well, it is, Mr. Old-timer. Me husband has just made a bet to tell the truth for one hour. And believe me, the next 55 minutes are going to crawl around or crawl around like a beetle with a bunion. <laughs> oh, well, if nobody ever stuck their neck out, they'd make Pullman windows easier to open. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> That's pretty good, Johnny. But that ain't the way I heard it. <laughs> The way I heard it, one feller says to t'other feller, Say, says, You got any idea how the Fibber McGee program ranks these days? Nope, says t'other feller, but it sure is, ain't it? <laughs> well, Johnny, if the truth gets too tough for you... <laughs> Remember George Washington? Huh? The reason he wore a three-cornered hat was because he was always getting backed into a corner. <laughs> so long, kid. Oh. Oh, I see. What? Well, I, 
Have I got to answer that, bud? <laughs> okay, uh, Chuck, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I think Fibber, McGee, and Molly is the best program on the air. <laughs> yeah, okay, bud. <laughs> well, if that isn't conceit, of all the peanut-fed, hickory-smoked, sugar-cured hams I ever heard... <laughs> Wait a minute, Molly, that ain't fair. I had to tell the truth, didn't oh, I? Oh, dear. Chuck, who's that there at our door? Wait till I peek out the window. Oh, it's Mrs. Eppington. Oh, you mean old 395? Why 395? That's as close as she'll ever get to the 400. <laughs> Don't you get it, Molly? I said... Ain't the... funny, McGee. Okay. Come in. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Eppington? So nice to see you. Oh, and how do you do, Mrs. McGee? And Mr. McGee. Hi, Abby. Well, what seems to be the trouble with you today, Mr. McGee? You don't seem as cheerful as usual. Yeah, he has a slight cramp in his style, Mrs. Upton. Oh, really? May, it must have been something he ate. I thought it strange to see Mr. McGee so silent. He's he's usually so, uh, so loquacious. What do you mean, loquacious? I ain't touched a drop since New Year's Eve. <laughs> no, she means Gabby, Gabby. <laughs> oh. Yes, as Maestro Mills was saying to me last night, Mr. McGee was born with a silver spoon in his mug, and there's been something funny stirring there ever since. <laughs> oh, really? I thought that was so whimsical. Oh, yeah, well, wait till I catch up with that guy. I'll wham the whimsy out of him. <laughs> oh, now, Mr. McGee, really, I didn't mean that. Huh? <clears throat> well, um, now, what I came over for, Mrs. McGee, was to get your opinion of my new hat. Oh, tell me, how do you like this? It just arrived from Paris. Oh, why, it's simply divine. It really is. So uptown, so, so, uh, chic. <laughs> uh, uh, do you like it, Mr. McGee? Huh? Uh, you want the truth, puppy? Why, uh, yes. Yes, I do. Okay, you asked for it. Puppy, that happens. Oh, uh, uh, McGee. Huh? Will you get me a glass of water? I think I feel a little faint. Oh, my, you poor dear. Why don't you sit down there? Uh, but getting back to that hat. <laughs> you better sit down, too, Uppy. <laughs> now, uh, before he says anything, Mrs. Uppington, let me warn you. Never take McGee literally. He always means just the opposite. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> How quaint. But I'm sure I'll value his opinion. Now, go on, Miss McGee. Okay, Uppy. I think that hat is marvelous. Oh. It's the most becoming hat you ever wore. Makes you look 20 years younger. Well, heavenly day. Oh, Mr. McGee, yeah. do you really think so? Oh, oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> 20 years younger? Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, Oh, you always mean the opposite of what you say. So you mean that I look 20 years older. Well, goodbye. Oh, now, look, McGee. Let's call the vet off. It's too nerve-wracking. Why, Molly, you mean you want me to lie about things? Yes, I do. I mean, no, I don't. That is... I don't want you to lie when, uh, well, at least you might be diplomatic. Oh, why did I ever start this thing? What makes you so contrary? I ain't contrary. I'm just keeping my word. When Fibber McGee says he'll do something, he's going to do it in spite of you can't say it on the radio or high water or something like that there. Oh, it's Mr. DiPapolis. Oh, hi, Nick. What's on your mind? Hello, Cupid. Hello, Fisher. I'm making a goodwill detour because I'm trying to find out why my customer is staying away from my candy kitchen in such a big crowd. <laughs> if all the people who are not doing business with the populace are laying end to end, I'd step on his face. Well, I'm sure I don't know why your business is so bad, Mr. DePopolis. Well, I know. You do, Fizzer? You betcha. Then tell me what is wrong before I'm going into bankruptcy. Now, uh, McGee, please don't... Now, uh, look, Nick. In the first place, your sandwiches are too thin. Oh, People that eat in your joint don't pry a sandwich apart to see what kind it is. They just hold it up to the light. Oh, be a little more specific, Fisher. What kinds of sandwiches are you referring to? Well, your minced ham. Your minced olive sandwiches, for one. Oh, well, it is hard to mince an olive so it is making a decent showing between two slices of bread. I 
think Mr. DePopolis' candy is very good, McGee. Oh, yeah? Well, while I'm telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, let me tell you what I think of his candy. Sure, go ahead, Fizzer. But be kind to my chocolate rabbits. They might be somebody's mother. <laughs> Forget the candy. But that chicken salad of yours, that, that's awful. Is that so? Yes, that's The populist chicken salad is made out of the finest tuna fish money can buy. <laughs> Why, of course it is, Mr. DePopolis. McGee, now you've said enough. I ain't said half enough. Nick, your coffee shop is the place where every good little soda mint tablet wants to go when it dies. <laughs> Do I make myself plain? Plain? Yes. You make yourself positively ugly. Fisher, you and I are always being a bosom friend, but one more smart cracks from you and one bosom is finding a carving knife in itself, and guess who? Come on, Shoopy. Well, now you've done it again. Done what? Broken up another beautiful friendship with your brutal frankness. Ah, so you're beginning to see what telling the truth really means, eh? But that's the way. By mind the time I was an elephant hunting in Africa, I was up on a high... Oh, hold on. <laughs> what am I talking about? i never been in Africa. <laughs> nice recovery, dearie. Well, thanks. But just... Well, hello there, folks. Say, I hear Fibber's going to make a speech at the uh, grammar school pupils on Washington's birthday. Yes, he is, Mr. Wilcox. How do you know? Well, I just came from the school. Oh. I had to make a speech there myself. To the class in domestic science. I... Oh, you did, eh? Well, what was your subject, Mr. Wilcox? Said he, with a sly wink at Racine, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I talked on the subject of uh, too many cooks can't spoil the linoleum when it's protected with Johnson's self-polishing glow coat. Cute title, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Very, if it leaves you any time for your speech. Well, I didn't need much time. I just told the pupils how they could keep their kitchen so much more clean and bright and cheerful with Johnson's Glowco. That's right. Because if they spilled a little gravy or a gob of goulash on the linoleum, they could just wipe it off with a damp cloth, you see. That's absolutely correct. So, of course, Johnson's Glowco was an old story to most of those youngsters. Their mothers have been using it for years. And Mr. Wilcox is absolutely right. It's true, every word of it. What? He said everything you've been saying is true, Mr. Wilcox. You betcha. It certainly is. Well, I'll be a... You mean I could come in here and talk about our product without being subject to a lot of heckling that... My gosh, I've seen everything now. Go on, folks. Now, look, McGee. It's all very well to tell the truth, but do you have to work so hard at it and frighten all our friends? Molly, when I say I'll do something, I do it. No halfway stuff with me. I'll... I'll answer it, McGee. I'm getting afraid to have you talk to anybody. No, sir. I'll talk to him myself. I feel kind of tough today. Be like the organ grinder that always went around with a chimp on his shoulder. <laughs> Hello? Who? No, Mr. Gildersleeve isn't here, Mrs. Gildersleeve. No, I ain't seen him since, oh, well, since last Wednesday. In the stationery store when he was buying you that valentine. Huh? Oh, you know, Mrs. Gildersleeve, that big, lacy valentine with the red heart. How'd you like it? Huh? Oh, you didn't get it? For goodness sake, McGee, now don't... What say, Mrs. Gildersleeve? Oh, sure, your husband even wrote a little poem on it for you. Sure, I can remember it word for word. It says, here's to your eyes as blue as the skies. Here's to your hair so gold and fair... When you're away, I always grieve. Your Valentine signed Gildersleeve. <laughs> Hello? Hello? She hung up on me. McGee. Huh? You know what you've done? What you mean? Mrs. Gildersleeve has black hair and brown eyes. What? <laughs> well, I had to tell the truth, didn't I? <laughs> Boy, will she have something to say to old Crocky when he gets home. <laughs> Well, you know what Confucius said about that. What did Confucius say? Confucius say, a man who... Uh, but wait a minute, the king's man can tell you better. Okay, boy, tell him what Confucius say.
I'll wait for Dollar Day and go down and buy a few bucks. Now, <laughs> uh, let's see. <laughs> what did I do with my speech? Oh, here it is. And so, Kitty, you must all try and pattern yourself. Come in. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Cloak and Dagger, followed by Abbott and Costello. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.